So I just want to say thank you very much to the panel for coming this evening, uh, for being a part of the conversation that we're going to have this evening. We're going to be talking about the millennium and health. I want to thank you for tuning in as well. If you have questions for us, please, please, please uh, sign into YouTube or Facebook and put questions down and we may consider answering those questions if pertinent to the study this evening. So welcome, welcome one and all. At this time, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to ask the panel to introduce themselves. Then once we've done that, we'll pray and get right into the study. So who would like to go first? Alex. Hi, I'm Alex. Um, I'm from London and uh, I work in the civil service. Thank you. Naomi, let's go. I'll, I'll <laughs> name and shame. Good evening, everyone. My name is Naomi Mangane. I am from the lovely Leeds and I work for the NHS. Thank you very much. We go to Eric now. My name is Eric Flickinger and I'm uh, not from anywhere around where you guys are. I'm from the US and uh, currently in Tennessee, the southern part of the US, and I work as a speaker for a Christian radio and television ministry called It Is Written. Thank you very much for that. We'll go to Safina, then we'll go to Dylan. Hi, um, I'm Safina Lowe, and um, I'm just currently in my master's. Um, I'm doing my master's in theology, so yeah. And where are you based? I'm based in Sunderland at the moment. Oh, that's, that's, thank you for sharing that. Much appreciated. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> my name is Dylan Mashambi. I am a student in Bradford, but I'm currently living in, in Birmingham. Yeah. Wonderful. So my name is Derek Simon, Pastor Derek Simon. I'm a pastor in the NEC, looking after three churches. And to everyone who's watching, I just hope and pray that you are blessed this evening. And let us just have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we are here this evening speaking about the millennium and speaking about hell as well, I pray that your spirit will be with us, that we will speak with clarity and that, you're, that you will tell us the right things to say and that from your word you will reveal the things that you can make plain. So Lord bless us as we move forward is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, just the other day, um, I was talking to someone and I said that I was going to be facilitating a study on the millennium in hell. And you know what the, the first question they asked me was? The first question they asked me was, what is a millennium or what is the millennium? So could somebody help to kind of clarify what we're talking about this evening? Sure, I'll, uh, I'll jump in. And, uh, and and take up the uh, the dead space here at the beginning. <laughs> Thank you. What is the millennium? Uh, millennium is is simply a combination of two Latin words, mill and annum. Uh, mill means thousand, and annum means years. So millennium is a thousand year period. And specifically, when you're talking about the Bible, uh, Revelation chapter twenty is the chapter that, by and large, deals with the millennium or the thousand years. Now there's a lot of different viewpoints on when the thousand years takes place and what happens during those thousand years with the righteous and the wicked and Christ and the devil and so forth. And we're going to be digging into that uh, this evening. But basically millennium means a thousand year period and Revelation 20 in the Bible is where that's really focused. Okay, so yeah, Revelation 20 is where it's really focused. And 
there are certain things that happened just before the millennium, certain things that happened during the millennium and certain things that happened at the end of the millennium and even post millennium. And I think we'll just dig into some of those things this evening. Mm. Can I so, also break a misconception as well that sometimes growing up watching The Simpsons, I don't know if anybody ever saw that episode of the millennium where people have been picked from the earth going up to the sky. <laughs> and that was kind of like presented as what the millennium is. So I think just for anybody who might have kind of seen that kind of an image, it'll be quite good for you to kind of stay on and just kind of see is that really what the bible says is going to happen or is that really how it actually happens that well what is if it's true at first whether people just get picked up from the earth one by one going up to heaven so yeah that was just something that came to my mind when I first thought of that and it made me laugh because that's an episode I remember watching and just thinking mm. <laughs> Um, I feel like just to just to quickly kind of roll back um, even more, like we're talking about um, sort of like, I guess, the, the, like the final chapters of Earth's history. So like it's not the millennium as in like today or tomorrow, but like, well, maybe, but <laughs> essentially it's like we're, we're in sort of the last period of Earth's history. So that's how we would kind of view it as well. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for those insights. And so I suppose to begin with, let's find out what kind of inaugurates the millennium? What are the things that start the millennium happening? Well, um, well, I think some of the things that we can kind of see going on, I think, especially if we start from like Revelation 19, and we just kind of like break it down a bit. Mm. I think, um, especially in like the first part of Revelation 19, there is this kind of like heavenly scene of mm. praise and honour kind of being given to the Lamb um, for this great victory that, that occurs. And then after that, you have this scene shift, which kind of shifts to the marriage of the lamb, which is very symbolic. Um, it's a very symbolic representation of the lamb and, and, and its people. And then finally, there's this like great battle, um, which I think kind of like leads into like this movement into it of, of like the beast and the false prophets who are kind of destroyed um, and they're like thrown into this, I guess, lake of fire. And I think what when you look at the millennium and you deal with it, I think that kind of goes into now looking at what happens with Satan and, and, and kind of like answering all these other questions. So I think those are like some of the inaugurative um, aspects that lead towards the, the millennium. Well, thank you for sharing that. I just think of the great advent. I just think, yay, Jesus is coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, so yeah, without that first happening, there wouldn't be that period. So there'd be uh, nowhere for people to go because he wouldn't have come. So I just think of Jesus first coming and the celebration and as was mentioned just being very happy like the time has finally come and then um get down to the details but first of all it's that joy and excitement that as was said it is and he's here and I just think that's amazing can, can I just add as well yeah, I had please. an experience when I was younger I watched I don't remember what the dvd was called but it was talking about you know the judgment the end of days there was, I remember there was a lot of fire, there was a lot of people crying, all this negativity. And it, it scared me into, you know, it scared me into Christianity. And for maybe two, three years, I was just afraid. I was like, oh, I don't want to experience that, that scene right there, because it was just a nightmare. Mm. 
But then when you understand, you know, the process and what has actually happened. So for example, you asked the question about how, you know, what triggers the millennium? It's the second coming of Christ. When that day comes, it's it's a it's a it's a wonderful day. But if you don't understand it, it's a shame. Because if you if you're scared by that, then it becomes it's it's, it's very it's, it's like for example, someone brings good news, the doctor's here to save your life, and you're afraid of the doctor. It, it's 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 sad if it's not understood. I think that's why it's important that we have this study so that we can understand what's happening and why it's important. Oh, thank you for that, Alex. Have you got something to share there? Um, I do indeed. Yeah, that was me. Um, so I'm just trying to form my thought. Um, I just think uh, I really love all the points that everyone's brought up. And I just think as well, like, essentially, um, you know, like the whole of the Bible is pointing towards like the return of Jesus, It's like Jesus coming again, like we mucked up in the beginning, everything went really wrong, the world is ugly. Um, like we have COVID, we have, you know, injustices and it is, it's wild. And so like the whole trajectory of the Bible is like the reconciliation between God and humanity. And so sort of in what's preceding the millennium is it is, as Sophina was saying, like this kind of big rejoicing, like, uh, like, you know, Jesus is essentially like coming again. And then there's this, this thousand, like Jesus has come, then there's this thousand year period and then following the thousand year period, it's like, this is it, this is the end. Like there's some other stuff that goes on, which I'm sure we'll kind of dig into, but then we yeah. sort of like ride forward into like the end bit of the story, like the best chapter. Um, so yeah, I think I think sort of like, yeah, some stuff comes before it, but that's sort of where we're all riding to, kind of what like what Dylan was saying as well. So there's some excitement about everything that is gonna be happening. So we've, we talked, we've talked about the second coming of Jesus and what are some of the exciting things that are going to be associated with that? Or what are you looking forward to? There's a, there's a lot to look forward oh, to when, yeah. uh, when Jesus comes back and we, we could probably spend the rest of the evening talking about that, but, mm. but then we wouldn't get to the even better stuff that happens after he comes back. Mm. But one of the significant things that takes place when Jesus comes back is the resurrection of the righteous, you know, from the time that, uh, that Adam uh, and people in his generation passed away to, to our day, we've lost people, we've lost loved ones, uh, people who by and large have have had hopefully a relationship with christ and we're, we miss them and that's a that's a natural part loss is a part of of life today it's not something that god ever wanted to have happen but when sin entered the picture uh, then came uh, came death and loss and and sorrow but when jesus comes back uh paul says in first thessalonians 4 that the dead are going to be raised uh and they're going to be given glorious immortal bodies he writes that again in first uh, corinthians chapter 15 and so what we see is the resurrection of the righteous when Jesus comes back and, uh, and the righteous, those of us who are alive and those who are resurrected are going to be able to join him and go to heaven where we're not going to have to worry about uh, the pains and, and sins of this life anymore. That's not a bad deal. Mm. I like the I way you put that. It's, it's not a bad deal at all uh, because we all have aches and pains and all of those things associated with getting older. Some of you might be thinking, getting older, what do you mean? But it happens to all of us. And it, that is one thing that we can look forward to. But someone was going to say something just there. Was it Alex? I could tell by the smile it was, on your face. Um, don't worry, please carry on. Sorry. No, please, go ahead, please. <laughs> no, no, I was just, just going to say, um, I'm sure again, we'll go into it. It might just be helpful for Eric to break down a little bit what he meant by righteous. 
Yeah, that's, um, well, yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go with that. Excellent. We're on the same wavelength. Of course. <laughs> Good. So when we look at the Bible, uh, Jesus describes two groups of people, uh, or the Bible describes two groups of people, the righteous and the wicked. Now, how are people saved? How do they make it into heaven? There's a misconception that exists in, uh, in the world and within Christianity as well, that you have to be good enough to make it to heaven. If you live a good life, if you do nice things for, for people, uh, if you never get mad at anybody, then you're a good person, you're righteous, and you make it into heaven. Unfortunately, that's not the, uh, the picture that the Bible gives. Um, which is not to say that we shouldn't be nice to people and shouldn't do good things and say nice things. We should, but that's more the result of what's happened in our lives than the cause of us getting into heaven. If we were good to make it into heaven, then that's often described as salvation by works. In other words, the, the, the goodest, the best people would make it into heaven and the less good, the not good enough people wouldn't. But what separates Christianity from just about every other world religion is the fact that our salvation is not based on what we do or don't do, with the exception of uh, accepting Jesus as our substitute, as our savior. Uh, none of us have lived a perfectly good life, not a single one of us. We've all messed up. And the Bible says that the wages of sin, uh, that is doing the wrong thing or breaking God's law, is death. We deserve death. But instead of giving us what we deserve, Jesus comes and he offers us something else. And he offers us eternal life if we receive him as our personal savior. So it's an exchange. He takes what we deserve, which was death, and he died on the cross for us. And we get what he deserved, which is eternal life. So the righteous are those individuals who have accepted Jesus as their personal savior. And as a part of that, that accepting Jesus as our savior, he's not just our savior, but he's also our Lord. So we choose to follow him out of love, not because we feel we need to do something, but because we can't help it. We love him so much for the gift that he gave us that now we just want to do his will. It's kind of like when you get married. If you, if you get married and you know that your wife or your husband likes something, like, for example, my wife likes flowers, uh, I don't give her flowers because I have to. I give her flowers because I want to because I know it makes her happy. And so for a person who is righteous, who's accepted Jesus as, as their savior, they do what Christ desires because they want to, because they know that it brings him joy and happiness. So the righteous then are people who have surrendered their lives to Christ and it's, it's reflected in the way that they live their lives. Hopefully that clarifies it a little bit. No, thank you very, thank you very much for that clarification. And Safina, you were going to say something. Yeah, no, I was just, I was just thinking about that as well. I was just thinking, um, when when I think about this idea of what it means to be righteous and, and this idea of righteous, I think as we look across the Bible as well, um, there is also a sense of correlating um, righteousness and justice. There is a sense of of that correlation and that, and that mirroring with each other, and so um, you know even even as we look at the biblical the biblical words for, for 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 the word righteousness in both Old Testament and New Testament, they correlate themselves to the, the to the word justice, and it comes with that idea of being covered 
by God's justice, being covered by this essence of justice. And I think that really, really, especially since we're looking at Revelation, I think it really also links well with the idea of the book of Revelation as well, considering that it deals with this idea of persecution, oppression, and this idea of, of a God who liberates and brings justice um, um, and to these people who are oppressed and who are calling out um, for God to, to answer them. So there is that sense of restoration and that sense of justice. And I think it was also something that I, I I think about as well when I think about the word, you know, righteousness and and how it relates to my life as an individual and the God I serve. Oh, yeah. And I just want to pick up on one of the points that was made, and the point was that it's really about having faith in God, having faith in somebody that can save us. That's what righteousness is. It's not about what you do, but it's about who you have faith in. He saves us, and then because we love him so much, then we do what he's asking us to do. And that's the right way round. So there may be somebody who's out there thinking, you know what, I'm not good enough to get into heaven. And Jesus is calling you and saying, just trust me. Will you trust me? I want to be with you. I want to save you. And I want to help you to be the best person that you can be. So please just go to Jesus. Please go to Jesus. Can I just read one verse? One of my favorite, recent favorite verses. Please do. From Philippians 2, verse 13. It says, For it is God that which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So for me to come up and say, I want to do this good thing, it, it's good. It's not a bad thing. But God is the one who enables me to even think that way. Yeah. So the important thing is for me to have a connection with God first. And then all these things will come as a result of that connection relationship with God. Thank you for that. Thank you. So... We've, we've gone through some of the things that inaugurate the millennium. We've talked about Jesus coming again, and we've also talked, talked about or spoken about the righteous going with him. Is there anything else that's happening? What about those who are unrighteous? What's, what's happening with those individuals? Mm. Because I, it seems as though from the Bible text that we have looked at already, that they're not going to be going with Jesus. So where are they going to be? Yeah, we, we talked a little bit earlier about Revelation chapter 20 playing a, a big role in understanding the millennium. And I think, uh, I think understanding what happens to the, to the wicked, to the unrighteous, uh, Revelation 20 unpacks that a little bit. And in verse number four, and I'm kind of skipping verses one through three, but I'm, I'm sure we'll come back and get them. Uh, verse 4 says, John is writing here, John the Revelator, he was on the island of Patmos um, and, and describing a vision that he had in, in the book of Revelation. And in verse number 4, he says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them, upon them and judgment was given unto them. So here he's speaking about the righteous, just for a little context. He says, I saw them, thrones were given to them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon his, for their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived, that word lived there means came to life, where they were resurrected. We were just talking a few minutes ago about those who have died in Christ and were resurrected and taken up to heaven. That's who this is describing. It says, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the righteous are going to be brought back to life, they're going to be taken to heaven and they're going to reign with Christ there for a thousand years. Then the beginning of verse number five says, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. So if the righteous are the ones 
who were brought to life and taken to heaven and they they're there with Christ for a thousand years in heaven. Then it says the rest of the dead. Well, that would have to be the wicked. They're the only other people that there are. So the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. That would indicate that during the thousand years, the wicked are not alive. So, uh, so during the thousand years, the wicked are dead. Mm. Any other comments there? I was going to say, I think it's possible that all this sounds really weird. Um, you know, like when you kind of think about it apart and we're obviously sort of dealing with it in isolation. Um, we're talking about like, you know, there's an angel comes down from heaven. Um, like Satan is sort of like the enemy or Satan is bound um, in this kind of bottomless pit. And then you've got all those who are like are trusting in Jesus are resurrected and then like chill out with Christ for 1000 years. And like, it, it just does sound a bit strange. And I'm sure Derek Genwood will sort of unpack this, but I think like looking at the why this is needed, because it's interesting, Eric, you mentioned that the dead aren't raised, like those who aren't trusting in Jesus and have rejected him are not raised till the end of the thousand years, or um, they, they stay dead during those thousand years. So then the purpose of the thousand years has to be for something different. Like what, what is it actually for? And, and what is it actually to reveal? And how is that even relevant when it just seems like a bit of a bizarre sort of like thousand year hangout period? Mm. No, I, and I think you bring up some really pertinent points there. And we are going to unpack those points. And I think it's very important that we do. Uh, I think when, if we go through it a bit systematically, then it might make sense to the people who are watching. Yeah, but very good. I'm glad that you brought those points up. So the unrighteous at this point in time, during the thousand years, they're, not, they're going to be dead. Mm. And we find out from the book of John that there's going to be two resurrections. And so they're going to be resurrected at the end of the millennium, as Eric quite rightly said. But let's go into Revelation 20 itself. Um, and let's look at this, this millennium. Let's look at this, this weird thing that we find in the Bible. So if we begin with Revelation 21 to 3, as Alex just read, it just says, And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Then he laid, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. If you were reading that for the first time, how would you feel? I remember the first time I did read it, I was very confused because, mm -hmm. okay, is, are there, is Satan going to appear now on the earth? And then is there going to be a big chain wrapping around him and holding him down for a thousand years? I didn't really, because mm. I, I like to picture things when I understand things. And that's the way I pictured it. And I didn't really understand what was going on. Mm. So that's, that's a part of it. What is going on in this passage? So we've got Satan who's been, we've got an angel coming down, lays, lays hold of Satan and binds him for a thousand years in the bottom of this pit with a chain. Sorry, what does all of that mean? <laughs> so just to, to, to start, to, to kick off, yes. um, we mentioned we, 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 a few seconds ago, we spoke about the two classifications of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. And we mentioned that the righteous will, be, will go with Jesus to heaven to reign for a thousand, to chill for a thousand years. And then those who are unrighteous will be dead, right? 
So that, this is the kickoff point. But mm. so it says in verse three, uh, to cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. So the link there is that you know what Satan is is doing. He he influences people and and gets his agenda done. But at this point, there'll be nobody left of the earth. The righteous have gone to heaven and the unrighteous have died. So when understanding this passage, I understood that I, I gained from that, that you know, since there's nobody left on the earth for him to tempt, that's his bottomless pit, pit bottomless pit, the abyss. That yeah. That's, <laughs> that's the kickoff. Yeah. And also I think from that as well, it's also trying to like understand is he gonna be chained by a physical chain like the one that we think of about prison probably not <laughs> um so yeah it's kind of understanding what is that chain necessarily and i think um just bouncing off what dylan said it's the fact that um he'll he'll be alone in and of himself not having anyone to go out and to tempt and it's kind of like being trapped kind of like in himself um the way that i kind of think of it as well um so yeah yeah, definitely. Um, I think I, I agree as well, because I think when we look at some of the language that's used across the book of Revelation, I think some of it is very much figurative and symbolic. And I think um, when we look at this idea um, of what seems to be the case with, you know, with the chains that bind Satan, I think it's very much clear that it is symbolic simply because I think when we look at the idea of spiritual beings like across the Bible and stuff, um, it, it seems quite unlikely that they're held or bound by chains. And when I think about this, I'm reflected or I, I'm kind of like sent back to think of, of the story. There's a story that happens in, in one of the books in the gospel of this demon possessed man who is by the caves and they try to bind him with chains. Um, I don't know if you guys remember the story, but he's unable to be bound by, by physical, literal chains because of the demon that is possessing him and this, this spiritual being that is, that is holding him. And I think that when, when I think about that, I think also looking at this, that this is very symbolic. And so when I look at answering the question of, so then what is the chain representing then? Um, I think that um, when I look at it and I look at this word abyss, for example, which kind of um, like represents or or mirrors example or mirrors like for example the, the idea that we see in Genesis and in the Old Testament when we look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, um, we get a very similar idea happening there and happening in Revelation. This desolate place, this void, this this mm. absolute chaotic world that is kind of left that essentially Satan and his angels are kind of left in. So then as I'm left to think about what is going on, there is possibilities of this idea of forming into maybe a chain of circumstance, that it's not an actual literal chain, but maybe it is an idea that he's left in this chain of circumstance. He is left in this abyss, which is the earth, which is this voidless world, this complete desolate, isolated world. And so he is left in this position with no one to torment, no one to, um, no one to kind of like you know be satan-y with um and so he's literally just left with himself and his angel friends to contemplate and think about the circumstances the consequences and everything that's going on so i i think that it is um very much a chain of circumstance um which he is which is used symbolically to represent his situation hmm. so the abyss is the earth as it is at at that time which will be uh 
a place which is formless and void. And yeah, definitely. Yeah, go on, yeah. Yeah, definitely, because I mean, I, I think, um, I think, you know, it's, it's very much, um, a, it's very much a word that, as I mentioned before, that's used in, in, um, in, in Genesis, where you see before creation, this, this voidlessness, this, this kind of thing, and you see it kind of coming through this idea of, of voidlessness, even happening, I think, before in, in what, like the Jeremiah 4, this idea of voidless and, and um, unformless and chaotic state, and then you kind of see it kind of coming into Revelation, if you are to look at it in a very systematic way, you kind of see it all kind of you know, there, there are moments of it and there are similarities kind of going on throughout the text when you end up in Revelation to this also, um, you know, chaotic state of the world that is left in during the period of the millennium. Can I just add a side thought, a side note very quickly? Go on, yeah. Because I was reading back in Genesis, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. I think that's the verse, that, that's the part you're talking about. Before God had done anything, there was nothing there was it was just it was just chaos so it's the same picture here so it's like it's like a contrast if we compare it to our lives now when we're without god there's 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 chaos there's disorder there's all of this stuff that makes no sense but when god's in our lives there's order there's structure there's positivity it's just something that i picked mm. up on just now mm. well thank you for that theme i, I think that's a, that's very profound so if we leave that for now and then we we move on we move on to verse four What's verse four telling us? So there's a different picture. It's like a change of scene. Um, so verse four talks about like a load of thrones um, and basically um, like people who we kind of uh, will kind of infer that they are those who are trusting in Jesus, those who have been raised again or were still alive when he came. Um, and they've sort of been given authority um, to judge, I guess. And they also, um, if you look slightly later on, um, like those who have come to life, they, they reign with Christ, they rule with Christ um, for that thousand year period. So I guess they're like, they're given authority to judge and they also like are, are reigning with Christ. They're part of that like royalty mm -hmm. bit with Jesus. No, I think yeah. that's, re that's really interesting. I just, I've got a question on that because in the very first part of verse four, it talks about thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. What is this judgment that was committed to, to these people, these righteous people that are with Christ at this time? What, what is that? Now, I asked the question for a particular reason because as we can see, the righteous have already gone to heaven with Jesus and the unrighteous are with him. So what is mm. there left to do? Judgment. What, go on, do you want to expand on that a little bit? <laughs> it, um, for me, I just see it kind of bouncing off what's already been said. It's now kind of like from verse one to three, we're kind of talking about what was happening underneath. And then now we're kind of seeing, okay, um, whilst satan is being bound and all of this kind of stuff we have this this is at the this is at the same time as the righteous being up in heaven so what are they doing so it's just kind of giving us what's happening now above after telling us what's happening at the bottom and here we can see it's that time where those who are righteous get to kind of 
um, go through the books and we can look at it in other verses or other parts of elements of the Bible. Um, they go through the books to see um, what had what has happened um, and why the unrighteous are still um, haven't made it to heaven essentially. So it's that time of understanding, I believe, as well. And because they um, have lived that life, the righteous life of Christ, they're then given that. Um, I guess let me use the word. They're committed. <laughs> Judgment is committed to them um, to be able to. Um, understand Jesus's reasoning um when everything happened yeah that's kind of how I see it yeah, I think to to kind of build on that um let let's say that we're one of the ones who makes it we make it to heaven which which certainly beats the alternative but let's say we get there and we find that our mother isn't there and as far as we can figure, mom should be there. And we're looking around and we can't find her. We're going to have some questions, I think, as to why mom's not there. And if God just didn't tell us, he just said, you know what? She's not here and you're just going to have to deal with that. Then there would probably always be in the back of our minds a question as to whether or not God made the right decision. You know, did he really make the right decision in not letting mom come? But as was just mentioned, uh, I think Naomi mentioned the books. Uh, we get an opportunity to kind of go back through the records and, and see why God made the decisions that he made. Um, there's The Bible talks about several different books. There's the book of iniquities or sins. There's the book of, uh, of deeds or, or uh, righteousness, if you will, and the book of life. Uh, the book of life, if, if you're going to make it into the kingdom of heaven, you, your name's got to be in there. That's accepting Jesus as your savior. The book of sins, uh, you've heard that there are uh, records of our sins jotted down. And then the book of deeds are the good things that we do uh, to help other people. Again, like we talked about a little bit earlier, we're not saved by doing the good things, but there is still a record of that. So during this thousand years, when, uh, when it says that we are judging with Christ, he's going to open up those, those books. You know, just to, to jump quickly back to the beginning of the book of Revelation, I think it'll give us a little bit of context uh, in this. In Revelation chapter uh, 1 and verse number 1, it says, that, so this is the very beginning of the book of Revelation. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the whole book of Revelation reveals to us who Christ is. And if we can see who Christ is, we get a good idea of who God the Father is. So the whole book of Revelation shows us who Jesus is. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it, that means he wrote it in symbols, by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Then it says in verse three, blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written therein for the time is at hand. So when we take a look at the book at the uh, millennium, it's going to reveal to us who Christ is and how he loves us. So during the course of this thousand years, as these books are open, as I get to look at mom's life, I'm going to get to open up those books. God, God in an act of ultimate disclosure, he says, I'm going to be completely transparent with you. 
I, I've made judgments of who's going to be saved and lost, but I want you to be satisfied that you agree with me. Yeah. And so he opens up the book of mom's life and he says, read it for yourself. And we start reading in some things and mom was able to hide some things from us that we didn't know were going on in her life. And as we read those things, our eyes are open and we realize, you know, it was probably a, a good idea that God made the decision not to, not to save her. Somebody once said that there are going to be three surprises when we get to heaven. The first surprises that were there that we made, <laughs> that's going to be a phenomenal surprise. I mean, that's just going to be worth everything right there. The second surprise, there are going to be some people who are not there that we thought were going to be leading the parade. We thought they were going to make it and they're not going to be there. We're going to have questions why. And the third surprise, there are going to be some people there who we never thought were going to make it. And we're going to see those people in heaven and we're going to, be, we're going to have some questions. How did Uncle Jake make it here? Because, you know, last I knew about Uncle Jake, he was incarcerated and he was, you know, a drug dealer and he was this, that and the other thing. And we're going to find out that something happened in Uncle Jake's life and God's going to open that book and show it to us. And we're going to go, oh, well, I guess we ought to let him in then. So it's going to be really exciting to see why God made the decisions that he did. And this judgment is going to be a, a big part of that. And just to support kind of like what we're saying in First Corinthians 6, verse 2, it says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world would be judged by you, are you unworthy to just the smallest matters, etc.? It continues to go on. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of like supporting um, um, Revelation 20, verse 4. And I think also just one thing to add as well, it'll also be kind of, um, I don't know if you, I can state this word, but we also chance for us to judge God. <laughs> kind of like what he said already, that he's fair, he's just, and the decisions that he has made are fair and kind of thinking back to the very beginning the whole reason why um everything has taken so long to get up to that point is so that when satan and his angels are finally destroyed um it's so that we can also say that that decision was fair because as we know if you had showed him at the beginning would have had questions we could have loved him out of fear etc 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 but with all of this time we also get to see that just as that decision he made at the very beginning as along with all the people along the way that everything he's done is is out of the kindness of his heart and he gave everyone opportunity time it's not like it just happened like that if you're watching and thinking oh he destroys people are like no he would have given them opportunities and time just as he has with anyone else um to be able to make that decision and to choose him um so, yeah can I just add one more thing as well? It, it, it justifies it because from the beginning, it's like we've come full circle the long way around. From the beginning, we've known that God is just, right? And we've gone throughout history, had all these issues left, right, and center throughout the timelines, people accusing God left, right, and center. But from the beginning, God has been saying, I'm God, I'm the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And this conclusion is just us coming home the long way around because yeah. God is always just. Alex, you had a comment. Thank you very much for that comment, Dylan. Much appreciated, Alex. Yeah, I think one thing that's really interesting is this is going to be the first time um, that those who have put their trust in Jesus are going to be with Jesus and without Satan. So yeah. as well as that sort of like, you know, understanding that God is just and proving that God is, you know, really getting a, a grasp of his character and his decisions, I wonder if it's all going to also going to be sort of a, a chance to really like 
begin to heal from all the the rubbish that we've gone through in the world um I mean like at the moment it's it's pretty wild and it, it's been just as wild for centuries before before this time and actually all of us who are resurrected will will still be like slightly traumatized I think from from that world and this will be the first taste we have of it and it, it is this massive lead up towards like essentially like eternity with Jesus like that final sort of uh, resting place I guess if you want um so yeah I think perhaps it might be partly that as well Mm. There's one one other thing. I remember I was discussing with a friend about this this whole idea of the end of the world, and he mentioned to me that you know we, those who will be in heaven, will have a testimony. They will have a song that the angels the angels won't know, because they won't understand what we've been through throughout all these years. It will just be a powerful testimony. I think it will be a powerful testimony. Uh, when I look at this this judgment, one of the things that I see is it tells me something about God. And it tells me that God is open. His kingdom is about openness. He's willing to say, you can check what I've done. This God who is perfect, this God who doesn't make mistakes is willing to tell us, this is what I've done. And it just tells me about the character of God. He's just so open with us and he wants to be open with us today. He's going to be open with us then just, to see, just so he can show us that his rule and his reign is an open, honest and loving rule and reign. And I think that's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And so there's a number of other things that the righteous are doing while they're in heaven. But there's a couple of questions that have come in and they've come in looking at hell. So we will have to, we'll discuss that in a, in a little while. Um, we've already spoken that there's going to be two resurrections. Um, so when is this second resurrection going to happen? And what else happens when this second resurrection happens too. So there's kind of two things there. The second resurrection takes place after the millennium. Mm -hmm. And that's the resurrection of? Damnation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> heavy. Okay, that's, not, that's not the word I would have used there. I was going to say the resurrection <laughs> of those would <laughs> go on. Someone else came in just there. So with this, the second resurrection, it's the resurrection of the, the unrighteous. Yeah. So those who are, so, <laughs> so we have the first resurrection at the beginning of, of the millennium for those who were righteous and they are taken to heaven for a thousand years. And one more thing about the thousand years, God's not in a hurry. He doesn't say you've got two minutes to check my work. He's like, here's a thousand years. Mm. So there's be one thing. But yeah, be thorough. So there's one thing. And then at the end of the millennium, there was the resurrection of the unrighteous. Now, and also there is something else that happens. So can someone talk me through the things that happened just towards the end of the millennium? Um, if we continue, I guess, in Revelation 20, when we were reading, let me just go back here. So from verse five, um, I think we already read this earlier. But it says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first um, resurrection. Um, yeah, and then if we go down to verse seven, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog of Magog to gather them together to battle 
whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Um, and fire came down from, well, okay, I'm going a bit far now. So <laughs> I'll touch on that. But yeah, from verse, seven, <laughs> from verse seven, we can see here that, like you, we said already at the beginning, um, that those who were dead for a thousand years will rise again. And then um, Satan's time also expires. And then he's now released and he's like, yes, I've got people again. And so he uses his motivational speech and he rallies them all up and he says, let's go. And then <laughs> we see another attempt to try and um, defeat God. Um, so that's kind of what takes place um, after that's part, that's something that does take place. Um, and I, I actually find that really funny because like you think yeah. about sort of, I don't know, like managing criminals like satan has perpetrated evil now for over two thousand years and so like you think that the sort of like consequence of that would be a life sentence and so god's like right a thousand years you're sort of bound by by circumstances you're left in this pit and then at the end of that i'm actually going to let you out again which i just yeah. think is really interesting because like if we did that in the prison system i mean like it wouldn't really uh kind of what's going to happen would be what happens <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> But I, I think what's really interesting is, you know, like the first thing that Satan accuses God of is that he's not a God of freedom and he's not a God who actually allows people to choose um, for themselves. And that's like the first accusation that he kind of puts against, uh, puts to sort of uh, Adam and Eve, or Eve, particularly in the Garden of Eden. And now God is almost proving himself um, to be a God of freedom, that Satan sort of when he come, comes out of those thousand years, like he is still in some sense, like free to, to choose God if he wanted, yet he winds himself up into destruction. And basically what we see is the, the, like, the natural this, like way of sin, like sin will lead to destruction, sin will lead to death, and Satan just sort of runs straight into that. And so God in and of himself is proved to be exactly what the opposite of what Satan accused him of um, right at the beginning. And it's interesting that Satan accuses God of something and he exhibits those characteristics himself. I, and I find that really interesting. And so after that, there is, so Satan, he goes and he, um, he tempts these people. And then what do these people do? What do these people do once Satan has tempted them to do something? They join him. Mm -hmm. they, they assemble to try and take down the people of God. I find quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's like, it's like, it's like a, when, I, when I first understood it, it's like a last ditch effort. All of you are alive now, people that number the sands of the sea, hundreds of thousands of people who have died throughout human history. Okay, it's a formidable army, I suppose. Satan gathers all these people. Okay, let's go and march on the people of God. You've just been bound for a thousand years, and now you think these people are going to be enough to go up against the living God. It, it, in my, in my mind, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's a last-ditch effort, from my understanding. Oh. So it is a last-ditch effort, and then what happens after this last-ditch effort? Do they succeed? Is everyone happy? Do they climb the walls and get into the city and run rampant? No, they don't succeed. <laughs> so I think what happens is, as Satan gathers these tribes of, of men that come, they, they assemble round about the children of God, and then as the city is descending, the New Jerusalem, correct me when I'm, when I'm going wrong, a fire comes down and kind of just wipes them all out. 
Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it says fire came down from God out of out of heaven and devoured them. Mm -hmm. yeah. So devoured means destroyed. Mm -hmm. So these people are destroyed at this time. Mm -hmm. Now it's interesting. I'm just going to kind of segue into something else now. I'm going to segue into, into the hell part of the study. So my first question is, what kinds of things have you heard people say that hell is? If you've spoken to different people, what have they said? And you mentioned hell. What do they say that it is? It's a place underground yeah. that's alive it's, as it's, we speak. It's the, it's the London Underground. <laughs> well, so, yeah, think, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a place underground. Safina, were you going to say something then? Yeah, I was just thinking, I think most people tend to claim that it's some form of like eternal punishment. And I think it's quite common to, it's, it's quite a common theme, I think, not only in like um, the Christian community, but I think you get it kind of going around, you know, um, whether in the Western world, just the world in general, I think. Um, and I think there are in this concept of hell there is essentially a focus on the idea of an underworld um in in correlation to to it and this you know there's usually those images of like this person with horns and a, a pickaxe or something uh, maybe a three-headed dog next to it and they're all part of very much like you know myth, um, very much movie genres that we see or just film genres or just mythologies or stories that tend to go around um, but I think the general idea, depending on, even though it's varied across the world, I think the general idea probably still stays the same, that it is a place of punishment, fire, eternal burning, or something like that. Mm. Alex. Uh, oh. Okay, Naomi, I can see that you're burning to say something. No, Alex has just unmuted her mic. I unmuted because I thought somebody said my name. <laughs> Oh, sorry, I thought you were going to say something. That was all. I think, uh, Derek, one thing that's um, that's interested me over the years on this subject is probably this subject more than any other subject uh, in the Bible has turned more people away from God and against God than mm -hmm. any other subject. And I maybe I should say a misunderstanding of this subject, because if if the Bible is true and it says that God is love, then even the topic of hellfire would somehow have to show us that God is love. And the misconception that's often out there is, is often kind of a, well, it's a single fold misconception and some people have a dual fold misconception. Uh, the single fold misconception, if you will, is that God burns sinners, he burns the wicked throughout eternity. And we, we really don't have, our finite human minds do not have the ability to grasp how long eternity is. Now, if we were to try for just a moment to wrap our minds around God burning someone, keep keeping them alive throughout eternity for the sole purpose of continuing to torture them. I mean, God looks like a tyrant in, in that picture. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever seen a, uh, a living human being who was engulfed in flames and there was nothing that you could do to help. I, I used to be a firefighter, so I've seen that. And there's really nothing more gut-wrenching that I can think of to see than a living human being who's engulfed in, in flames and, and you can't do anything to help. But the picture that pervades in much of Christianity out there is that that's exactly what God does. He burns people throughout eternity. Now, if you take that misconception 
and you couple it with another misconception that's out there about predestination, that is that God creates some people to be saved and he creates others to be lost. And there's nothing that they can do to, to choose which group they're in, but he has already made that decision for them. Then what you have is a God who brings the vast majority of the human population into existence for the sole purpose of torturing them throughout eternity. That's not a loving God. That's a tyrant. And that's where you get so many people who turn against God. So I think understanding this from a, from a biblical perspective is going to help us to see that God is love, and that's not what his character is like. Mm. And so, go ahead, please. Um, I was also going to say that it, because I was going to answer your original question, which is some of the misconceptions. Um, some of the misconceptions is that this place is kind of, um, it's run, like it's, it's Satan who has the power to destroy. Um, I don't know if you've kind of seen that kind of like in books or fiction and stuff like that. It's like Satan, he's the one who's got the power to cause this fire. He's the one who's got the power to dis to destroy. He's the one with the power um, for this brimstone and all that kind of stuff. But here we can see that it's not actually him. He's leading the rebellion, but it's not actually him who causes the brimstone of fire. It's not actually him who destroys because he doesn't have that. It's God who actually does that. So kind of like, um, yeah, kind of, yeah, that, that's kind of like a misconception that I've seen as well. And I think as well, like there's a lot of things, um, there are like a lot of things in the Bible that might feel uncomfortable or like feel difficult to understand. But I, and I, I think sometimes like you have to take a little bit of time and sort of like, you know, understanding to, to work those out. But I think as well as humans, like we do know in ourselves when like something isn't quite right. And like when something just sounds so horrific that like, is that, does that quite marry up? Like, is that quite right? And, and I think, like the, the uncomfortableness that many people who aren't Christians have felt with that is actually a really right response to the idea. Um, and so like this, you know, the kind of Adventist understanding in particular, and I know sort of other um, theological strands have sort of got, been coming around to that as well. Like it is a really important um, thing to kind of study and understand. And if it's true, it has huge consequences for how we understand God. Hmm. I think that's very important to say. So thank you for that. So we've, we've looked at some of the misconceptions that people have. So what does the Bible say about hell? What does it have to say about this, this thing that we're talking about now? Um, well, I think, because um, I, I kind of read one of the questions, and I think this might kind of draw into one of the questions that was um, raised, I think, particularly in Luke 16. Um, and I think if we're looking or if we're taking the concept of hell um, to mean this idea of like a hereafter or potentially like an afterlife of some form, then I think um, I think what we what we can find or what we'll see throughout the Bible, I'm talking about Old Testament to New Testament, is there is essentially um, this kind of flow and and um, maybe a development. And what we end up with is maybe a development of, of ideas. And when we look at the Old Testament, um, I think what we can find, especially in, in Ecclesiastes and so forth, is this concept that, you know, the, the dead is dead. And 
and ultimately, you know, the, the Sheol, which is like, you know, the grave and so forth, that um, that ultimate, ultimately means that they are dead and they know nothing. But I think um, going to one of the questions that was raised um, in the chat, I think when we kind of like transition or move or kind of like flow into the New Testament, we do see um, this kind of um, development of, of ideas on, on that concept of hereafter um, potentially coming through from, from some of the books um, and some of the authors. And also as in Luke 16, which was one of the verses brought up, we see it coming through also from Jesus and perhaps even his audience and stuff. Um, who were very much maybe aware um, or knew or understood some of the ideas of that time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true um, or that it is truth, this concept of uh, eternal fire. And I'm just saying this because in the story that was raised in the question on the parable of the rich man and the poor man with Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, where you have this rich man um, and I'm just paraphrasing, I think he goes out and he like he, he has a lot of parties and so forth. And then Lazarus, the poor man, kind of lies in front of his doorway. And then ultimately, coincidentally, you know, weirdly, very weirdly, they both die at the same time. And what we have is one of them, you know, Lazarus, the poor man, um, ends up in this very luxurious, comfortable place with Abraham. And he's looking down on, on the rich man who is in this kind of like bottomless, fiery, burning place um, um, and, and, the, and, and there's a conversation that happens there. Now I think first of all when addressing this and especially looking at the development of these ideas I think first of all what's important to notice especially in, in Luke is that it's a parable and um, parables are not real stories they are essentially just illustrations to get a point across and, and Jesus uses quite a lot in his text but also I think the secondly, when we look at it, I think also it's important to understand where this context is coming from. And I think in this context, Jesus is addressing the idea of the judgment, the idea of a judgment and being ready or preparing for a judgment and what we need to understand. And I think using this idea of an afterlife or using this idea of a hereafter is a really good way. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what you guys, but it's a really good way of getting across preparing for something such as the judgment and such as like millennium and so stuff like that. And I think um, you know, we do see these ideas coming through also in, in in other books like First Peters and so forth. But again, I think these are very much just illustrations and these are very much just points to bring across this idea of of, of judgment and what will happen then. So when we look at this concept of hell and when we look at this idea of of afterlife and hereafter um i think what is remarkable to think about is the fact that the people in new testament were considering these ideas but it does not necessarily mean that it was truth it was just very much used to bring out an illustration or a point because these were ideas that were very much present i think in the people's minds during that period Okay, so thank you for that, Safina. So you've, we've really looked at the parable that's in Luke 16, 19 to 31. And that's not talking about a literal place that is hell, but it's Jesus is trying to illustrate a point. Mm. So yes. Yeah. And if but if we if we can kind of bounce off that, I'm coming to you and I'm saying and I ask you this question: Is hell a real place? And do people go there? And if not, what is it? 
How would you answer that particular question? I'd say it's real. <laughs> uh, maybe not the way that it's communicated in the world, but Jesus said that there's going to be a hell and the and kind of like going off um, what I think Dylan was saying earlier, it's not this underground thing that people think. And I think from the passages that we've just read, like in Revelations um, 20, verse 9, I believe it was, um, where we talked about, yeah, and they went up on the breath of the earth and fire came down and heaven and out of heaven and devoured them. So the the torment, everything happened here. So to me, I think like it is, I kind of use this as a joke, but I say we're living in hell. <laughs> Maybe not literally with the fire and everything, but technically <laughs> this is where the end takes place. It's nowhere on the ground. It's nowhere in a different, or anything like that. It's right here. Those who didn't accept Jesus as their personal savior, they will not live forever because it says, um, for God's love, though, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So if you don't believe in him, you're not going to have everlasting life, whether that's enjoying or that's burning, you're just not going to have eternal life. Um, so, yeah, so that would be the perishing that I think happens. I would say, yeah, it does. And I'd say it's here and now. And it's, I'm not here now, but it's here on earth. And that's where the destroying will take place. So I'm going to go to Alex and then I'm going to come to Dylan. Um, yeah, I was just, just bouncing off that point. Um, like, I think, like, yes, hell is real. And Jesus talks about it, like, throughout the whole of the Bible. And, and But I think what we sort of have to, like, and we've kind of touched on this before, like, we've got to disattach what we associate with the word from it. So even when I say hell now, like, when Naomi says, oh, I'm living in hell, it's like, well, you're not living in what hell actually means. Like the word, yeah. when you say you're living in hell, you mean you're living in a prolonged yeah. period of torment, <laughs> which is like, which is not what hell is, right? So like, I feel like the word sort of got attached to different meanings um, over yeah. time. But like, if you look at it throughout the Bible, like in the Old Testament, it's sort of like uses shale, like the grave. Um, I think Safina mentioned that, or like in the New Testament, sort of Hades again, which means the grave or Tartarus, which means like a place of darkness. So like essentially the way I've understood hell is like eternal destruction, like eternal death, um, like kind of a finishing and end. Yeah, and just to clarify my point, I wasn't saying I'm living in the hell, I'm saying like the place, um, trying to say that it's not somewhere down there, but the destroying of Satan and his angels will be here rather than somewhere. <laughs> no, thank you for that, Dylan. You, you had a point to make as well. Mine's just a quick point. Like for me, I would literally describe it as an event. Like whenever I mention the fact that it's an event that is going to happen, it's not a place that is there physically right now. When, when I say it's an event, it starts a whole discussion and then we can yeah. break it down like that. But I always start with it's an event, first of all. And then they're like, huh, an event? What do you mean? Huh, what? And then it just kicks off there. Okay, so that opens, up, that opens up the conversation once you say that it's an event. So yeah, instead of thinking that it's a place that's going to be that has a collection of tormented people forever. It's something that happens, and then once it's finished happening, it's Stop. over. Because, yeah. like we we're talking about before, the perception that people have—it's a very strong perception. Like people who have never set foot in a church, open the Bible, already know about, already supposedly know what hell is. Oh, it's this place that we go to when we die because we've been by all this other stuff, and they tell you all these details. It's like, okay, this this idea is not really correct biblically, anyway. 
So when you say it's an event, it, it, it destroys all those preconceived ideas and sets a new foundation for the truth. Okay. So thank you for that. And I, I just want to move on to another um, question. Sorry, uh, just to clarify, because I'm not sure if I mentioned this word um, when I was talking about Luke chapter 16, and, that, and I mentioned illustration, but also I think a huge word to put out there is that it's also a metaphor. Um, so yes. Thank you very much. You're, you're, you are now the queen of grammar. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> so we've described hell as an event that's going to happen. So my question would be, well, what's the purpose of this particular event? Why is this event going to take place? I think, uh, Derek, coming back to Revelation chapter 20 again, we talked about we talked about the two resurrections, the resurrection of, in John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus calls them the resurrection of life, that's for the, the righteous, and the resurrection of condemnation uh, at the end of the thousand years, that's for the, for the wicked. Coming back to the question, why does God bring the wicked back to life again? I mean, they've, they've died, they're, they're dead during the thousand years, why at the end of the thousand years does he bring them back up again? And we, we talked also about you know, Satan keeps doing what he's been doing. Uh, the city comes down and he just keeps rebelling. The wicked come up again and they do what they've been doing. You know, they continue rebelling. So what this does is it gives evidence, additional evidence, that the decision that God made to save the righteous was right and the decision that he made that the wicked should not be saved was also right. Uh, even given this, this second life, they continue rebelling against him. Now, there's, there's a, a verse in the Bible that really, I think, is kind of key in understanding this. Uh, there's a verse that says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and earth. So when and why and how does that take place? Because there's a lot of people who are rebelling against God right now who don't consider him Lord, who haven't accepted him as their savior. But in that day, when, when the city comes down and all the righteous are inside the city and all the wicked are outside the city and they're rushing up against the city, every single person who has ever lived or died on planet Earth is going to be there that day at that place. And the wicked, as they come up against the city and Christ reveals himself, they're going to have this, this overwhelming realization that they can't win. You know, numbers are on their side, uh, maybe strategic thinkers, generals are on their side, weapons are on their side, but what they don't have on their side is God. And ultimately, they're going to come to this realization, we can't win. And at that point, they're going to confess and say, you know what, God, you were right. Uh, your way was the best way. We could have been in the city with you. We could have made the decision to surrender our will, our lives to you and, and to trust in your righteousness and your justice and, and everything, but we decided we wanted to be selfish and do things our own way. So this, this second resurrection, what it really does is it gives the wicked the chance to confess that God was right. The righteous are saying he was right. The wicked are saying that he was right. And, and it clears God's name forever from all of the, the lies that have been told about him and, and things like that. So it's a, it's a really powerful time to vindicate the character of God. 
Um, could you repeat your question as well? I agree with what um, Eric said, but I think I was also going to just say something, but I need to repeat the question. So, so I was really asking what, what's the purpose of hell? What's yeah. the purpose of, as we have the process, Yes. the event I should say, not the process, the event. Yes. Um, yeah, I agree with what Eric just said. And I was also just thinking that um, it's also God, God, um, he's loving, he's kind, he's just, but God keeps his word. And in the beginning, he says, if you, you will die. Um, and we know that in Romans um, 6, 23, it says that for the wages of sin is death. So the death process element of it has to take place because God had said so. And also, it's not because he's wicked in his heart, as we've already covered, so I won't touch on that again. But it's also because in the very beginning, he just wanted to be with us in harmony, in joy, in peace and in happiness. And in order for that to happen, um, it has to start, start afresh, has to be completely destroyed. Um, and I think um, it said that in Ezekiel 28 verse 18, that therefore I was brought from your midst. Um, it devoured you and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. So ashes means to never come back ever again. And that's what God wants. He wants sin, the devil and the trace of it to be completely um, gone so that he can start afresh so he can be with us and those who love him and to be dwell together with him which was his original intention so for me i think that's the whole purpose of that happening god keeps his word and ultimately because he loves and he wants to be with us and sin is the thing that is separating him from us at the minute so it's got to go so. i think yeah. even more broadly like sin is a thing um that's that's just like ravaging the world like sin is the thing that is like like perverting desires that's that's um like creating diseases like it has physical consequences it has like natural consequences like i i think sometimes we're we're, we're so ingrained in like you know living on the earth that we think that a lot of the things that are wrong are normal mm. like and again like that could even just go to sort of like natural disasters or like diseases with no cure like those things aren't normal in God's world like they're a perversion of what he actually desires and and they are part of the consequences of sin naturally and so like just to bounce off what Naomi was saying like God doesn't want a world where there's the possibility of that being a thing again or that happening again or a possibility of world where that's sort of like hanging over um, or existing somewhere else like this is the new earth like it's something completely new. It's a restoration, um, but it's just the sin, sin is completely destroyed. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Let's go, Safina, then Dylan. No, definitely. Um, and I think just gathering from what everyone was saying, I think when I was thinking about it, I was just thinking it is like, it's it's that chance to kind of restore order to, as I, and I kept going back to this word, that very like chaotic um, world that had happened. So I think it's that restoration um of of order from from chaos i guess mm -hmm. and just, just to bounce off what's been bounced off about bouncing off it, revealing the character of god the character of god is such a beautiful thing because I remember a few well before the covid situation when whenever me and my friends got together one sentence that was always said was the struggle is real and you know we say that so often that it almost becomes the norm but here's, here's the here's the thing 
God's character and God's intention was never for the struggle to be real. The struggle wasn't supposed to be there. So this idea of death, suffering, the overwhelming evidence against this negativity that is sin is there. We just look throughout history. God's intention was never for us to experience that. For us never to say the struggle is real. The struggle shouldn't be real, but it's there. But at least at the end of all this, we can say that, okay, this is not for us. It's not correct. God is just. Let's remain connected to God. And nobody can say, ah, maybe, nah. There's overwhelming evidence. Just look back. It's all there. Part of um, my understanding is this. Hellfire was never there to act as something to scare us, but it is something to eradicate sin. That's what it's there for. And so if you are connected to God, he's able to save you. But if you're connected to that sin, then he cannot save you from hellfire as well. And so it's the process to, yes, eradicate the universe of sin. But if you're holding on to that, then that will be your final destination as well. But God wants us all to be saved. That's the thing. He's trying. He's wooing. He, he wants us all to choose him. Not by being the best person, but by trusting in him all the time. But let me just ask you this one question. What are you looking forward to? After the 1,000 years is done, after the city has come down, is there anything that you're looking forward to? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to finish the study. <laughs> I mean, everything. Being people, um, yeah. I'm hoping to have some of you guys as my neighbours. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I just think um, that hall would be no sea. So. Um, I have some friends who I love who are overseas and just that whole not having to be separated or be apart and just fellowshipping and um, yeah I think we already know this not I have seen no like you know you can't even conceive what it's going to be like but I just think it's going to be exciting and, and I always think like my favorite ever cat meeting is going to be like that but better because everybody will be there everybody will be rejoicing everybody will be happy and everyone be singing and it'll just be so beautiful so yeah just like oh that. that's fantastic you said that with passion Naomi you said that with passion <laughs> 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 right about now <laughs> and I think that's something that we ought to remember that there is something good going to come out of all of this God is going to be vindicated and there's going to be no more sin and for me one of the things that I'm looking forward to is a continuation of a relationship and that's a relationship with Jesus because it starts now. It doesn't start when we get to heaven. Oh, I think I better get to know who he is. He wants us to get to know him now. So that is my prayer for everyone who is watching, everyone who has taken part, that we get to know Jesus now so that he can carry us through all of these things and we can be with him forever, that we can be with him for eternity. Mm. Our time is up. I just wanna say thank you very much to the panelists. Thank you for your, your insights and your contributions. They were much appreciated. Um, Thank you to Eric, who has joined us all the way from the States. Thank you for our SEC brothers and sisters. Thank you for our fellow Northerners and from those in the middle as well. It's much appreciated. Just want to say, I hope God continues to bless you. And I hope that there has been some clarity with respect to what the millennium is, what hell is, and how Jesus can take us all through. So once again, thank you. I'm going to ask that we close in prayer. Now, Dylan, can you close for us, please? Let us pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, Almighty God, where we can come together and study your word and understand the things that you have planned for us, Almighty God. I pray that everything that was communicated today was clear, Almighty God. I pray that your Holy Spirit continues to teach, continues to preach, Almighty God. Help us to understand your character, Almighty God, your desires for our lives, and help us to commit ourselves to you, Almighty God. Those who may be watching, I pray that you bless them in a special way. Help them to seek you in everything that they do, Almighty God. I pray for the peace that's the path of all understanding, Almighty God. This may not be an easy topic at times, Almighty God, but with you, peace will always come. So I pray that you help us to trust in you, Almighty God, and your plans for our lives. For you, those who may be watching, Almighty God, who may not be Christians, I pray that you teach them, Almighty God, and show them your character, Almighty God, and show them that you will love us. Be with us as we go into Sabbath hours, Almighty God. I pray that your will is done. Be with all of the presenters and speakers. I pray that your Holy Spirit continues to Teach, Almighty God, and guide us throughout the weeks to come, throughout our troubles and trials, Almighty God. Guide us in your way, in your holy precious name, I pray. Amen. Amen.